So welcome to Living the Present Moment with Dr. Joel Ying. Today is Friday, August 31st, 2018. On this series, I interview people of passion and purpose, doing interesting things, living the present moment. I'm your host today, Dr. Joel Ying. I'm a physician, educator, storyteller. You can find me online at livingthepresentmoment.com. Join the mailing list, visit the blog, find the calendar at livingthepresentmoment.com. I'm excited about today's topic. My guest today is Dr. Larry Friedman, and the topic is the story of HIV. Now, Dr. Lawrence Friedman is an MD and a director of the Division of Adolescent Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Miami, Miller School of Medicine. That's a long <laughs> intro. Um, he is involved in the care of teenagers there and, and young adults, and he's been there uh, long enough to have been one of my teachers as a resident when I was there over a decade ago. But he's an educator of medical students and residents within the Department of Pediatrics. Along with a multidisciplinary team, he uh, is in the Adolescent Medicine Clinic and, uh, and also works with the Special Adolescent Clinic for HIV-infected youth. Uh, he's been involved in many clinical trials and principal investigator for research and works a lot with adolescent health and, and, and often adolescent HIV. And I remember being a resident and one of the things that captivated me about his teachings were the stories that he would tell. And to tell you the truth, back then I didn't realize why I was being captivated, but today I do storytelling as well. And I remember that moment of, of uh, when it was launching into story and the air became still and all, all of us in the room were just watching, hanging on every word and wondering uh, about the story that uh, was taking place in front of us. So I, I, now that I know the magic of storytelling, I can appreciate how useful it is and how wonderful it is that you use it for your own teachings. I, I'm curious, uh, Oh, your take on that? Like, is it something that came natural to you or is it something that you've practiced? Well, this is just delightful, Joel, and it's such a pleasure to be reacquainted with you, especially around the storytelling topic. And I just fell into it much as what you just described. I just was also very uh, interested in some of the patients that I saw and maybe along the way why I was seeing these particular patients over the course of my education and career in pediatrics and in adolescent medicine. And I realized just kind of naturally that a lot of what my patients displayed to me in their presentations was itself very educational. And that we physicians can learn by sitting, watching, and listening a lot of times, rather than always just running to the textbooks or seeking to do research about what we think might be happening. And I found that oftentimes our observations and what our patients tell us give us clues as to how best to treat them as individuals and what might be more important for them in their lives to get over whatever the medical problem is or 
the conflict or challenge that they are facing. And so I kind of stumbled upon it also. And then over the years with medical students and residents and other trainees, much as you just described, I found that the patient descriptions and the observations sociologically and um, psychologically were uh, an effective way to educate the next generation of people who might be seeing teenagers or children before they're teenagers and then subsequently young adults in their medical and clinical practices. Mm. Wow. I tended to be one of those people just growing up that was very observant anyway. And I'm kind of smiling to myself because I was frequently the one that my friends growing up would call to get directions. How do I get, <laughs> how do I get someplace from somewhere else? Or where will I find such and such a, an object or a topic? And visually, I could just sort of imagine the scenario or the route to take and I would describe things like in, a, in giving someone road directions. Now, when you get to this intersection, you'll see this on the left side and you'll see that on the right side and that's where you'll know to make the left turn and kind of descriptions like that, I think was always a part of my natural being. So when patients presented themselves or when there was a cluster of things that seemed to be related or there was some commonality of theme, I tended to be one of those people that wondered why or why are all of these things happening at the same time or what are the circumstances that this is being duplicated over and over. And that's led me to make these kinds of observations and HIV being one of them when we were confronted with that new infection way back in the early 1980s. Now I'm giving away my age, but <laughs> I remember HIV before it even had a name and before that particular virus was discovered. And there were certain features about the patients that we were seeing in Miami and the pediatrics department that kind of gave clues to something happening. And subsequently, when we learned what the infection was, trying to then understand and figure out why Miami as a city was one of the early places that HIV presented itself, especially in the pediatrics age group. Wow. I remember, one of the things I remember is that story that you told about the discovery of HIV because it's such a captivating story and especially the time in my training, uh, we had already discovered the virus, but uh, what I was seeing on the adult wards was people coming in in some of the final stages of illness because of the hospital care I was involved in. And on the pediatric wards, I was sort of seeing the same thing. And the medications were newly developed. So I, on the maternity wards, I was seeing the medications first being used to try to prevent transmission from mother to fetus and 
And so it was a new time of the medications. And I'm struck also by the fact that the story has continued to change. Uh, today, it, it has become, with the medications, although they're still very expensive, it has become a chronic disease kind of uh, problem rather than an acute problem. So I, I find many people with HIV are now dying from other things, which is uh, you know, something new. Yes, and in pediatrics, we actually found that gratifying mm. that once treatments were able to be instituted in babies and in teenagers who, babies who were born with HIV, and then in teenagers mostly who had acquired HIV, there wasn't the same sort of negative, uh, depressing, downturning of events leading to death. We were able to sustain life and have babies actually grow up into adolescence and finally into adulthood and having teenagers who had acquired the infection actually survive their growing up years mm. and also entering into adulthood to become productive citizens as they had every right to be. And then in the more modern age, in the 2000s and the 2000 and teens, where we find ourselves now almost to the year 2020, people just consider HIV a chronic disease. Although there is still no cure, it certainly can be treated and people can lead productive lives. And as you just pointed out, grow into old age and then have to contend with the usual, typical kind of advancing years medical problems <laughs> rather than only focusing on the infection that had such a terminal um, process and progress in the older era. Mm. I'm uh, uh, struck by how it's changed and also I I, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, uh, how, how long it's been. I, I didn't say on the call that it has been almost a decade since reconnected, and, I, and it's because I remember the time that you told the story. And I'm wondering if you could share that, how you tell the story now, because I'm sure it's changed. Well, it has changed, but it still means that we reflect back on where we were, how we got to where we are, and all of these things help to predict what will happen in the future. So when HIV first presented in the pediatrics field, I was uh, in training and I was learning to take care of children and the problems that pediatric age patients uh, were presenting with. And we were struck in the early 1980s by a series of babies who had either a respiratory deterioration or a diarrhea and dehydration picture, and we didn't know why there wasn't a diagnosis made of a particular kind of a pneumonia or a certain germ that was causing the diarrhea and dehydration. But what these two sets of babies showed us were some physical features, some swollen lymph nodes and some laboratory abnormalities where we thought, is there something that's relating these two different kinds of patient 
scenarios were these kids with these respiratory issues that we could not diagnose this similar somehow to these gastrointestinal kinds of disorders. And at the same time, our, our practitioners of adult medicine colleagues at the hospital were seeing a different set of adult people, healthy, young, mostly men at first, and mostly sexual minority gay men who were presenting similarly with some respiratory problems that did not have a formative or a causative organism, or men who were having some gastrointestinal diarrhea and dehydration illnesses similarly that did not have a cause. And these were healthy individuals previously. These were not people that were expected to be sick. And the pathologist at our institution, the University of Miami and Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami, Florida, actually got the adult providers and the pediatric providers talking to one another because they, in their evaluations by laboratory tests and uh, biopsies, and then, on, and then from the autopsies that they were doing from some deaths that ensued in both the babies that we were seeing and the adult men that the internists were seeing, there were some similarities. And the two departments started talking to one another why should there be such similar findings between such disparate groups of people? And that was right around the time that out of Paris and out of Washington, D.C. came reports of a new virus being discovered that assaulted people's immune systems that was seen to be inherited or uh, communicated or transmitted by either a sexual contact or a blood to body contact or being born in the birth process kind of contact similar to some of the sexually transmitted diseases that already had been discovered in decades prior and similarities then recognized between a potential sexually transmitted infection and this new one called human immunodeficiency virus. And when babies were found to actually not be infected while gestating in their mothers, it, towards the middle part of the 1980s and the later part of the 1980s, that they actually mostly got infected during the birth process from the contact in, with blood and with body fluids that babies just ordinarily have as part of their passage through the birth canal. Some interesting work then started immediately on the possibility of preventing that maternal to child transmission from HIV infected women to the babies that they were bearing. In the original days, there was no treatment for babies when 
the first experiments for treatment started, the way that research and clinical trials for new medications and drug therapies were happening in the 1980s. It was always adult people who were the ones who volunteered for experiments. And with medical medication studies, it was frequently male adults who were the ones preferentially picked so that the problems of medications for potential childbearing women wouldn't have to be sort of, um, you know, taken into the calculation. And only doing drug studies then on a small group of the population, that being adult men, kind of delayed for a little bit the dosing that would be needed for a woman whose body is not like that of a man. And certainly it delayed instituting treatments onto babies since infants and children are deemed vulnerable populations and not independent to make decisions for themselves. Many of the drug studies and medications that were formulated, not just for HIV, but for human diseases in general, were not at first tested or doses sort of determined for babies. Mm -hmm. One of the things that HIV brought to attention was that no one should be deprived of potential beneficial therapies and treatments that could keep them alive. So subsequent to the HIV era, well into the 1990s and beyond, pharmaceutical companies and research entities and government-backed research studies were forced to not only include adult men, but also adult women and children if the diseases included all of those populations so that everyone could benefit from treatment as quickly as possible. And so that happened and infants were found to tolerate treatments much as adults were found to tolerate treatments. It wasn't easy to get our patients necessarily to stay on treatments. There were side effects and other difficulties of costs and insurance coverage to supply the treatments and so forth. But we realized in the medical community that anybody who took treatments could benefit from those treatments. And it allowed us to start to focus on identifying HIV infection in populations and then getting into treatment as soon as possible, such that now the story of HIV is much different. With the modern treatments that have many fewer side effects and are much more efficient in their ability to ward off the bad effects of the infection, people are able to tolerate and take treatments uh, as minimally as one pill, one time a day. The pills having three or four medicines combined into a single tablet or for the younger kids into liquid formulations such that the adherence abilities with fewer side effects and more long-standing abilities to sustain life are what we see now. 
Wow. Yeah, I know that's been a dramatic change. I remember in my training, the drug cocktails were several medicines taken several different times throughout the day, uh, you know, multiple dosing usually. And so was, they were very difficult regimens to, to um, have people, you know, have a life and, and take all these medicines and, and actually try to be compliant. And they had so many side effects. And yeah. Yeah. we could sympathize with our patients that it, it wasn't easy to sustain this treatment, but yet that's all that we had at the time. And so it was the onus on the pharmaceutical companies and the scientists and the physicians and other clinicians to try to see the best treatments that could be formulated so that patients would have an easier time uh, getting onto treatments, staying onto treatments, and then fulfilling the goals that they had in life growing up and pursuing careers and interests. And at first, we weren't so sure about the ability to have uh, friendships and marriages and childbearing and so forth in our child populations. And fortunately, over the years, all of those things have been normalized as well mm. so that people can have lives and romances and spouses and lead families and have children and so forth and so on. So from the standpoint of the medical care, it's been quite gratifying to still be around almost 40 years now of recognizing wow. HIV and seeing how our patients can grow up and, and live because recently, until recently, that wasn't the case. Wow. Yeah, that's quite a dramatic change. It's interesting that in Miami, where you were as well for part of your career, we saw the issue of HIV in babies and in teenage children much before a lot of the rest of the United States did. Mm -hmm. And we didn't realize at the time that the social upheavals of that era and the confluence of different kinds of life events and uh, things going on around the world and migrations of populations and the tourism industry that sustains a city like Miami, all kind of uh, coincided and crisscrossed in Miami all during that middle and earlier part of the 1980s that brought HIV to our area much before a lot of the rest of the United States uh, had experienced. And that might have been part of the story that you remember. Why in Miami were we seeing these, yeah. this kind of infection in babies, but also in adult gay men? And what similarities were there between babies and adult gay men? Not too many between those two populations, but what was going on in life all kind of 
crisscrossed in the city of Miami that showed us HIV in both of these kind of uh, both of these populations. Hmm. Wow, that's ancient history almost now, Joel. I, I I'm marveling at that as well to have seen so much change in uh, medicine and. You know, at the time of training, uh, I think, oh, this is how, you know, I'm going to learn this. This is how medicine's going to be. I'm going to figure things out. And it's just uh, fascinating how the world continues to change at a lightning pace, no matter and, what field we're in. And we hope that it continues to evolve yes. in a positive way. And with all of the benefits that modern societies can use or can show us to assist in these quests for improvement of health and improvement of life. Something that was quite noteworthy over these decades with HIV is that stigma continues, unfortunately. Hmm. And although we've done much better in um, preserving benefits, keeping people goal-oriented and feeling positive and having optimistic outlooks, there still are quite a few challenges related to discrimination against populations who are most at risk for HIV infection, for the poverty and challenges of medical care that oftentimes poverty-stricken populations face, that the inequity of medical care and the disparities that we still recognize in many aspects of life have still influenced HIV negatively. So it isn't all good news, but certainly we're on a better path than we were in decades past. Yeah, I, I'm curious in Miami how, how the I guess the situation is with the cost of the medicines and access to care there. Well, our government finally, towards the 1990s, uh, passed the federal Ryan White Care Act. It was a bipartisan effort in the House and Senate when the population of the United States recognized that we no longer could discriminate against populations that were presenting with HIV when government support was needed to help with these costs of treatments, when insurance coverage wasn't necessarily so anxious to include something like an expensive terminal illness into care. Fortunately, the government saw the benefits of helping people stay healthy and stay alive, and that allowed clinical services to be formulated and case management opportunities to assist people in obtaining good nutrition and help with transportation to doctors and medical appointments and costs of medicines because the original medicines were very costly. The 
development of medicines is costly because of just the need to test them to make sure they're safe before testing medications to see that they actually work, the costs are so great that it took a while till effective medications were found and then costs could be decreased with use of the medicines, with popularity of the medicines, and with companies reducing prices by not holding brand names, but becoming more generic and allowing uh, copies of medicines to be made. And so although overall care is still rather costly because it's a chronic disease that can last if a child is born with HIV for decades till their death, we've done a lot of advances in controlling these costs. One of the main cost containments has actually been the prevention of HIV, mm. starting with prevention of maternal to child transfer. It was determined and Miami played a huge role in that also. The obstetrics uh, practitioners at Jackson Memorial Hospital that were quite bothered with the fact that they were seeing a large group of women, young childbearing women, back in the 1980s who were infected during the course of their sexual relations with their male spouses and boyfriends and husbands and so forth were the ones that were transferring the germ onto their children. The, this notion that taking medications during the pregnancy and taking medications during the birth process and the baby initially right after birth taking some medications could prevent the actual uh, penetration of the virus into the baby is a huge cost savings mm. because then babies don't have to sustain that HIV that prior they would have had to sustain. And these maternal to child prevention measures eventually have found their way into other populations. So certain people with HIV who had romantic partners who did not have HIV, it was first determined that wives of husbands could have the infection prevented by similar medication administration to those wives. And then as societal discrimination kind of minimized and stigma trying to kind of destigmatize the process kind of came into being male partners of males with HIV could also benefit from taking the prevention medicines, and now for all populations, it's possible for pre-exposure prophylaxis to be utilized as one strategy for prevention so that known HIV negative individuals can 
prevent their acquisition of the germ from their HIV-infected sexual partners. And then as years have gone by, just 2018, we've now seen reports that patients with HIV who take their effective medications show the benefits of these medications and for long-standing have no detectable virus circulating in their systems are not going to give HIV onto their sexual partners regardless of whether certain other protective barrier contraceptives or other devices are used. And this new campaign of undetectable equals untransmissible, U equals U, is a new concept just being promulgated now in the summer of 2018. Mm. It's, it's an exciting time from the standpoint of prevention. It's yeah. just taken all of this time to get to this point. Wow. And at least in Miami, with all of the new advances in prevention, are you seeing a decline in transmission or incidence anyway? Not yet. And that partly has to do with Miami being an international city, a tourist city, a city that draws populations from all over the world where some of the prevention measures maybe haven't uh, come into play yet. We still have a lot of educating to do amongst populations on how to prevent diseases in general, not just HIV in particular. Mm. And we still have the problems that poverty and lack of access to health care and discrimination based on sexual activities or gender or ethnicity or race or country of origin still come into play. And those are still problems that we face. Miami is a city also that has, besides the tourism industry, we also have a photography and fashion and arts community, um, which draws individuals who may themselves be a little bit risky for HIV just in the activities in which they engage or the sexual precautions that they do or do not take. And there's always that need to be vigilant to the prevention education and those aspects that are self-induced. We all have responsibilities to do the best we can for ourselves and hopefully for our fellow humankind by our practices and our being informed and knowledgeable about such things. Well, there, there's so much new happening. I'm curious in the adolescent community, how you're presenting this issue to adolescents and how, how is it coming across in school these days? Because I'm not in the pediatric world anymore. 
Well, teenagers, just by virtue of their growing and developing, have a natural feeling of invincibility and that it, nothing can happen to them. It's not their fault, it's their cognition and the ways that the mind is developing over the course of growing up from childhood into teenage life into young adulthood. And so we know that these thinking capacities mature and develop as time goes by just based on their genetics and their education and other factors that we just don't even understand still about the human body and the human mind. And then as a, an additional factor, we know from studies that were done 20 or 25 years ago even, that the brain is still undergoing some subtle change even well into the young adult years, even into the young 20s with different parts of the brain showing new activities and increased development, especially around decision-making, impulse control, and those mature processes called executive function. And so the education and the counseling that we do to young people is really quite different than to adults who have fully developed minds and are self-sufficient and have to be responsible after all as adults for themselves. We give teenagers a little more leeway recognizing that they don't have all of the facts, nor can they, because they're just not fully developed. And I don't mean that in a demeaning or a condescending way at all. It's just a fact that there is still growth and development and behavioral maturation. That's a natural part of those years growing up. So with teenagers, we talk about a lot on uh, alternative approaches that we know using HIV and other sexually transmitted processes as the example, we know that the, there are ways to prevent the transmission of these germs. Don't have sex, intercourse, sex, and if there is going to be some kind of intimacy, it doesn't have to be penetrating intimacy. It can be intimacy that's more emotional or intimacy that's physical contact, but not penetrative. And it's actually just the intercourse activities with penetration where we have the uh, real problem of transmitting germs from an infected person to a non-infected person. So we talk about these things now in health education and schools who do good and effective HIV and sexually transmitted disease prevention are those that talk about all the ways to prevent from abstinence and not having any kind of uh, physical contacts to having safe physical contacts that are non-penetrative to then also having protected contacts if penetration is going to be a part of the sexual relations. And those protective factors mostly being the use of latex condoms. 
And we also brings up a, a point, condoms as a disease prevention mode didn't even get promulgated until this HIV era because condoms during many decades in the past was strictly for contraception. It mm -hmm. was only effective, condoms were only effective for birth control. The material, the natural material that original condoms were constructed from prevented pregnancies from happening, but did not prevent passage of the bacterial and viral organisms that cause the sexually transmitted infections. And it's because of the space industry and the defense industries in the, that were making new products during the 1970s that by the 1980s, there was something called latex that for the first time was being used effectively for other purposes and could be formulated into a condom shape for use to prevent actual disease transmission mm -hmm. by tight bonds in the, uh, form in the uh, makeup of latex condoms to prevent any kinds of germ passage. It was happenstance, actually, that a lot of advances in HIV got made to, in the first place because we as humans and as scientists and as clinicians had already developed certain techniques for other uses that could then be translated to the HIV situation. Wow. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, there are a lot of wows in yes, yes. the story of HIV because of the intersection of sociologic uh, evolution of human rights and medical problems and research all coming together at mm. the same time. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, someone once looked around my office and said, wow, after coming to a storytelling event, she's like, everything has a story. <laughs> and so, yeah, in this perfect storm that we call HIV and we think A, B, C, D, E, it was, you know, 20 A's and 20 B's and 20 C's with all different stories coming together and intersecting. And that's such a good point you're making, Joel, because a group of sociologists talking about HIV have a slightly different story about the epidemic and the evolution over the course of time than a group of MDs and nurses might have who are clinicians seeing patients with the actual illness that HIV is. And that would be a different story than the scientists in the laboratories doing basic science investigations of the germ and how to block the germ from duplicating itself and what treatments could be formulated to hopefully eradicate and kill the germ. Mm. Lots of stories around yeah. in different settings. And I love your point that the stories come from different perspectives as well. And, and, and perspectives some, change. And perspectives change and 
some of the stories can be interesting to all the groups involved because yes. we're sort of all in this together. Yes. On the other hand, um, the stories don't tell necessarily the patient's aspect of the mm, story. Mm -hmm. And those are very important as well. And when our patients tell us the challenges they face, or the patients who tell us how effective their approach to the challenge has been, and our ability then to share what we've learned from our patients when we counsel new patients, that itself can be so powerful. Mm. When patients are feeling pessimistic, uh, getting a new diagnosis, still having this terminal aspect associated to HIV, even though it's more chronic now rather than deadly. When patients can sort of know that, gosh, there have been generations before them that have kind of paved the way and formulated approaches and figured out effective strategies to deal with it, they feel empowered then to face up and to keep going and to not give up. And that's very gratifying to us clinicians who are taking care of our patients also. No, that's very true to think about the lineage that's gone through to make these medications successful and how many people died trying to figure out the you know, as part of these studies, trying to figure out the right doses, trying to figure out which medications worked, went through all these side effects and came to where we are now. And more and more patients know that it didn't used to be as good as it is now. Mm. They remember a family member or the neighbor down the street when they were a child growing up and the rumors or the whispers or how they were treated or what the family's reaction was, oftentimes a negative reaction at the beginning because of the stigma, of the discrimination, of the mm. behaviors that led up to the onset of HIV and families, different coping styles and different religious kinds of focuses and all kinds of different aspects of life that people remember in the past aren't necessarily continuing now and into the future. There are now examples of people who are doing well and are living long lives and don't show outwardly the negative effects of this illness and who can change behaviors and advocate for assistance and so forth and so on, that the attitude of new patients, although it's still sad that we continue to see new patients, since HIV is totally a preventable illness, we at least don't see the pessimism and those negative uh, personal aspects that we previously did. Mm. Yeah, from a diagnosis that was once a death sentence to now a chronic disease is really a dramatic transition. Yeah. But we would still like to prevent it totally. Yeah. And it is a totally preventable illness. And so that's a focus that we 
can't let up on and that we mm. must all sustain for years to come. Yeah, I'm excited by the new work and prevention that you talked about. I'm, I'm also curious by another story in my training as well with another virus, hepatitis C, that was a chronic disease for when I started in medical school all the way till most recently. Uh, it still had a, it, there were still medications that could possibly cure it, but the cure rate was at barely 50% and had major side effects. And now it's a curable disease. And, and so I'm curious about what you see on the front of curing HIV. And, and utilizing H, uh, hepatitis C as the example that you just brought up, that also is a preventable infection. Mm -hmm. Since people catch it from each other by doing things that if they didn't do, they wouldn't catch it. Um, and so similar to HIV, if we can just keep people from getting it in the first place, we've really made a major step in health of people in our local area and in our mm -hmm. country and in the world in general. But bringing that H, uh, hepatitis C issue into this conversation, we hope that there can be formulated by the scientists and the pharmaceutical companies a treatment that will eradicate the HIV virus just as hepatitis C now can be eradicated from the body. Yeah, it does give hope. It gives hope. And I'm, I'm so old, Joel, that <laughs> hepatitis C didn't even have that name when I learned uh. about it. <laughs> it was called non-A, non-B hepatitis because it didn't oh, have it didn't have the effects that hepatitis A had or hepatitis B. So it was non-A, non-B hepatitis. That's funny. I do remember reading that history. <laughs> it, it, you remind me also of, uh, there's an author, and I'm trying to remember if her first name or last name is Chimananda. But she had a talk and she said that it's not that stereotypes are untrue. It's just that they're not the only story. And I think that's a really powerful statement when HIV was gay men to hear that the other stories that were surfacing were the pediatric population, were young women uh, because of whatever social issues were going on there. But also another population just mentioned, or you mentioned when I thought about hepatitis C, it's from blood transfusions. The whole screening of blood came into into um, use for hepatitis C when we had discovered it, and then with HIV when we discovered it. But before that, there was a huge population of hemophiliacs who needed transfusions that uh, were dying of this disease early as well. So there's, there's a lot of subpopulations that have very different stories about this disease. That's right. And these things all then were sort of universalized to other aspects of medicine. There's something called universal precautions now mm. that dentists use, hospitals use, medical professionals use, whereby we protect ourselves from possible exposures that we would have from a patient's blood or body fluids, um, which didn't exist before the HIV era. Wow. 
we just washed our hands really well and we cleansed skin or wounds of patients very well with alcohol or with iodine or other cleansing substances, but we didn't cover our fingers and hands with latex gloves and wow. we didn't wear masks for certain exposures and we didn't use protective clothing if there were possible splashes or, or goggles or other kinds of body protective devices until this era when it was determined that these germs can get into people from other ways. The blood transfusion cases of HIV were one of the first to be addressed because there were advances in medicine during the 1970s whereby uh, human insulin was used and could be manufactured. Diabetes in the old days was treated with insulin that was derived from pigs and cows. And there was a technique that allowed for unlimited quantities of human insulin to be made in a laboratory, uh, recombinant DNA technology that then could be translated into the plasma clotting factor mm -hmm. realm of investigation, which hemophiliacs lacked. And then instead of blood transfusions or infusions, mm -hmm. these plasma factors as treatment for hemophilia, a laboratory could produce unlimited quantities of clean human plasma factors that now hemophiliacs are treated with instead of relying on donations from human specimens. Even the blood supply was cleaned early on in the HIV epidemic. In the United States, the blood supply was totally free of HIV by 1985 because also there was an advance in medicine in the 1970s. Uh, prior to that, it was not possible to measure exact hormone levels in the human body. Most were estimates based on mathematical calculations of findings of proteins and other substances in the blood that were associated with different wow. and hormones. And now, a technique was uh, determined called ELISA that allowed for exact measurements of things like growth hormone and thyroid hormone to be measured. And it turned out serendipitously that that same ELISA technique could be used to look at the antibodies that bodies were producing against this new infection of HIV. So this technology of ELISA could be formulated readily into testing for the presence of HIV, first in the human blood supply at blood banks, so that those that were found to be infected could be thrown away. And then the same ELISA technique could form be used to formulate an actual HIV test 
so that humans could be tested and blood donors could be tested even before they donated the blood to make sure that the blood that they were donating was free of these kinds of germs that could be transferred on to someone else during that mm. uh, blood transfusion process. So we uh, had these advances, at least in those two aspects of HIV early on so that people wouldn't keep getting infections from their hemophilia treatment or their blood transfusions. Um, one of the early populations that had HIV transmitted were injecting drug users mm. who were sharing needles for their uh, inject injecting activities. And we still have a problem internationally with that population because the desire for the drug use surpasses their worries around sustaining an HIV infection. We don't see that quite so much at all in youth. It's just not an activity that most children and teenagers ever get involved in, but adults still do. And that is still a way that some adults sustain HIV infection. And babies are being prevented from catching HIV if their mothers are identified before the time of their birth so that mothers can go on treatment and during the birth process babies and mothers both can be treated and soon after birth babies can be treated briefly to make sure that the infection hasn't invaded so we're not seeing the same rates of new babies with hiv infection as in prior decades the whole state of Florida uh, in, in 2017 only had five cases of HIV from the birth process. And mostly that was in women who did not get prenatal care and weren't known to have HIV or, and delivered too quickly at the time that the labor came on such that they couldn't even get a test done then to perhaps take the prophylactic medications to prevent the infection. So that's a population that we've done very well with, but injecting drug users and people having sexual penetrative activities without the use of barrier contraceptive device or barrier devices and those that um, maybe have HIV and don't know it and thus are not on treatment are ones who keep passing on infection also mm. as maybe their um, uh, numbers of germs circulating in them are so great that they in their sexual fluids are still allowing the transfer of the germ to another person in the course of sexual activity. Hmm. These are the populations that we struggle with. And with youth, that's a big deal because again, teenagers don't think of themselves as being at risk or vulnerable to a lot of different aspects of grown up life. 
And so they maybe don't get tested for HIV. They don't think that the people they're associating with sexually could possibly be giving them any kinds of bad problems. And that's a difficult nut to crack still. Mm. Yeah, it's quite a... Thank you for sort of giving the summary of all the populations and how how each one's being treated and, and how things are changing. It gives hope to hear the whole story and the, the history. And we don't want to give up. We still have optimism. We still want to keep moving forward, up, heads held high, not, you know, shunning or regressing or going back in time. So all of the social evolution that's going on to be accepting of all populations and sexual minorities and peoples from all around the world and uh, all kinds of um, approaches that are inclusive rather than excluding. All of these things help us all work together and keep making hopefully forward and positive advances. Right. Not just in healthcare, but in humankind and relations that we have with each other. Mm. Thank you so much for sort of this broad overview and, and history and of course the stories. And uh, I'm glad to connect after a decade to hear all these stories are continuing to evolve and to be told by you and to be passed on to new generations of doctors and medical students and 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 just patients, adolescents, and so forth. And thank you, Dr. Ying, for helping to kind of get the word out on a lot of topics. And storytelling will continue to be part of my educational goals for future generations of clinicians. And I hope that it continues to help spur interests and for all of us to always remember what we've learned and what we can continue to learn from just listening, but not just listening, actually hearing mm-hmm. and understanding what we're listening to. Mm. Yes, a big part of stories is the listening. So thank you for stressing that. So thank you uh, for everyone on the call. It's Dr. Larry Friedman, Professor of Adolescent Medicine at the University of Miami. Thank you for being on the call. And also stay tuned for more from livingthepresentmoment.com for people of passion and purpose doing interesting things, living the present moment. Thank you all.